Hello, and welcome to episode 193 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. A warm welcome to Isabel T., Matt VN, Saube L., and Wendy H. to The Modern Manager membership. I invite you to explore how membership can help you up your manager game. Go to themodernmanager.com slash join to learn more about the support available, including our group Q&A calls with me and your fellow managers, plus episode guides and guest bonuses. Plus, if you work for a government or nonprofit agency, you get 20% off of any membership level. Again, the website is themodernmanager.com slash join. Now, today's guest is Russ Linden. Russ is a management consultant, leadership instructor, and author who has worked with public and nonprofit organizations for 36 years. He specializes in change management, collaboration, and the use of influence, when formal authority won't cut it. Russ and I talk about the experience of navigating change, how to better deal with ambiguity, this phenomenon called loss aversion, the relationship between change and learning, and so much more. Now here's the conversation. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Thank you so much for joining me today, Russ. I want to start with a shout out to your nephew, (laughs) Seth Linden, who is my guest on episode 149 who was talking about planning a team retreat because he is the one that made this introduction for us. Seth is a great guy. I'm really glad you interviewed him. All right. Well, must run in the family. So let's dive in here and talk about the neuroscience and what is going on in the brain when we are dealing with change and resistance and learning and all of that like stuff that allows us to kind of move through the world and and navigate. It's a great place to start. Mamie, we've learned three major things, we being neuroscientists, over recent decades. Two of them make change more challenging, but the good news is that the third one, which I'll get to in a few minutes, is really good news. Briefly, we're learning that first, our brains are wired for certainty, predictability, and control. It probably reflects our Darwinian struggle for survival. If you think about it, our brains continually scan the environment. They identify what seems safe and what seems like a threat. But here's the deal. Threats, scientists have learned, loom much longer than things that are safe. Our brain reacts much more strongly to a threat. So our brains are comfortable when they know that we're what they're encountering. That's why they're wired for certainty and predictability and control. Knowing something's a threat is better than not knowing. And then finally, learning it too late. So this is a huge challenge with change, but it's especially huge, maybe, with the kind of disruptive change that so many of us are experiencing today. I mean, think about it, extreme weather. We've got wildfires that consume entire towns, things that have never happened before. We've got an economy that on the one hand recorded a record number of jobs last year, but here's the deal. We also had a record number of people who just walked away from their jobs. If you're in retail, good luck. I mean, how do we find people to come and stay? And then our dysfunctional politics, enough said about that. And of course, I haven't even mentioned the mother of all disruptions, this ever-changing pandemic. Let me tell you one person's short account of the impact this is having. David Brooks, who's a noted New York Times columnist, was asked recently on TV, David, how are you doing personally? And you know what he said? He said, well, not so well, actually. Maybe he said, you know, I'm used to getting up feeling focused, 
energy, eager for the day. Now, now he says, I'm feeling scattered. I have trouble focusing. I wander around the house. He said, I actually go into another room sometimes and can't remember why I went there. You know, a lot of people can relate to that. That's what this disruptive world is doing to a lot of people. And it's the opposite of what our brains need. Second finding, neuroscientists and social scientists some time ago discovered what has come to be called loss aversion. Loss aversion. Most people, not all, but most are more motivated to avoid losses than to achieve gains. A few examples. We're in a sports season now, baseball, football, basketball. Successful athletes will tell you they love to win. I've interviewed some of them. But you know what they'll tell you that what really gets them is when they lose. They hate to lose. They remember those games a lot longer. Loss aversion. Turns out that the great majority, maybe, of football coaches punt on fourth down when the ball's on their side of the field, when statistics show that in most situations they'd be better off running for it, going for it. But loss aversion, again, they fear not making that first down. Or maybe they fear that they'll be super criticized in the papers tomorrow if they try and they don't make it. So the safe thing to do, the safe thing to do is they punt. Loss aversion in the workplace. I'm sure you've had people on your podcast who have talked about this, Mamie. Lots of people, it turns out, don't ask for a raise, even when they know that they're doing work that others do and others make more money. Why don't they ask for the raise? Well, they, they fear that making the ask maybe sometimes results in a no, or it might result in a no, and they fear the loss. Related to that, they fear maybe this will damage my relationship with my supervisor. Now, the reality, of course, is if you ask and you're turned down, it's an opportunity. You can find out, well, what does my supervisor think I need to do to merit a raise? And by the way, knowing that would help meet our brain's need for certainty and predictability. So loss aversion is the second of the biggies. It's a real challenge when it comes to change. I'm sure maybe a lot of your listeners know about a terrific book, my favorite when it comes to leadership and change, Leadership on the Line, Heifetz and Linsky. For me, the, the price of the book was well worth it in the very first chapter, where they wrote, people don't necessarily resist change per se, people resist loss. That sentence did it. It made so many things make sense for me. But it turns out most changes, even the positive ones, involve some loss. Before the show started, Mamie, you were telling me about your two kids. I don't know if you can remember your first baby. I can remember ours. You know, it was a blessing. It was a miracle. But what did we lose? Well, sleep, <laughs> time, time with ourselves, time with our partner, control, energy, Changes inevitably involve some loss, even the ones we love. So when a change is announced, depending on the situation, lots of people first worry about what they'll lose. And so as managers, when we're announcing a change, we have to think not only in the positive, optimistic way, how do we gain, but we have to be prepared for what people worry about they'll lose. The third and final finding, and this is the great news, comes from neuroscientists. Turns out that our brains, as we get older, demonstrate something called neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity, what's that? Well, scientists used to believe that the brain was finished developing by the end of adolescence and it was all downhill from there. I don't know about you, but things seem to go uphill for me after adolescence. But in terms of the brain, now scientists know that we may lose brain cells as we grow older, but the brain also creates new cells and new neural pathways. Now, one example of this maybe is familiar to a lot of people 
if somebody, if some damage happens to the brain, so you get a stroke, part of the brain that controls speech, well, another part of the brain kicks in and creates new neural pathways that compensate for that. But the even more wonderful thing about neuroplasticity is it doesn't take damage for the neuroplasticity to work. Our brains are continually creating new cells and new pathways. It happens when we exercise. That's why people like me and aging baby boomer are told keep exercising. When we learn new skills, say a musical instrument or a new language, that promotes development in the brain. Our brains, it turns out, thrive on learning. So the good news with neuroplasticity, maybe, it makes it easier to learn and grow and change. It can help us develop what a psychologist named Carol Dweck called a growth mindset. You may have talked about that on a previous podcast. Oh my gosh. Oh, you just said so many good juicy things in here. I want to I wanna go back and, and kind of dig into these different pieces. Let's dig in. All right. So let's talk about this first finding around certainty, predictability, and control. Obviously, for most of us, that is just not possible in the workplace, right? Like we set no goals way. and then, the, you know, we have to respond to new information and things are constantly changing. So what is it that we can do? You know, what do you recommend or what have you seen work for others in terms of creating, either creating ways to have certainty amidst the kind of uncertainty or to just help us better deal with the fact that there just isn't going to be certainty and predictability in the workplace? Well, let me start with what you ended with. I think, as you know, better than most probably, managing expectations is part of a good manager's game. That's what good managers and leaders do. Articulating it, hey, folks, we know everything's changing. We know we can't predict. It makes it hard as hell. It affects me. I'm sure it affects you. Let's be real together. We just need to know that you know, and we need to know, and I've said this to clients, maybe forget about perfect for any of you. And I've had a little of this in my own life for any of you. I'm imagining I'm a manager now, maybe or a consultant, which I continue to do for any of you. I say who still are thinking, you know, it's got to be perfect. Forget about it. As my wife from New York would say, <laughs> not the deal for perfectionism has its downsides anyway, as well as its upsides, but it's impossible. So let's get the expectations straight. A second thing we can do, Mamie, is always useful, but especially, especially in disruptive change, and that's to focus more and more on relationships. I'm imagining that I'm working for somebody, and who knows if the strat plan, the strategic plan, means anything anymore, because things are obsolete in a matter of days. If I can count, however, on my manager to be there when I need her or him, if I can count on my manager to be honest, transparent, real, that's something that's stable and that doesn't change. That doesn't mean the manager is going to be totally consistent because the manager is going to come in some days and say, hey, here's the newest from CDC. Forget what I told you two weeks ago. Or, hey, turns out our partner doesn't have the money for this. We can't control the changes, but we can control what we control, which is the relationship part, being trustworthy. So I find that that's become more and more important. Here's both um, a kind of a big picture from 30,000 feet as a third way to respond to your question, Amy, but also something I think is really concrete. On the one hand, we have to be as flexible as possible. That's what the, re the environment requires. But at the same time, Amy, can we as individuals in our personal life or as organizational people, can we decide what's at the core of who we are? As a person that for me would start with family, what's at the core of who we are in the organization? Is it some overriding value? 
some belief, some practice, some process that always has to work. At the 3M Corporation, they always say, never ditch a new idea. Maybe put it on the back burner, but never dismiss it. At some government agencies I work in, they say, ultimately, our purpose is to have neutral competence. Neutral because we can't be seen as, as partisan. Competence, we've always got to get it right. So can we, at the same time we're adaptable, Amy, can we focus on what's at the core, business life, personal life, and make sure that we hold on and protect that as well as we can, knowing we won't be perfect, but we do have to have something that's steady that we can always remember, this is the reason why we're here. I love all of those suggestions, and I can see how helpful they can be for managers and you know, as you were talking, it was I was kind of reflecting on my own experience and thinking, like, what have I done in those moments of certainty? So I'm going to add one more and then we'll move on to the next topic, which is that I have a colleague who really likes certainty and I am like the opposite. I'm much more on the like, OK, we'll just figure it out as we go. And so the way that we have really learned to work together effectively is to say, OK, this is the decision for now and we'll revisit it again in two weeks. This is the mm. right. This is the plan for now, and we'll revisit again in a month, so that I get to maintain the sense of I have the right to change my mind on something, or uh-huh. as new information comes in, we're going to pivot. And she has a sense of certainty that this is the way that we're moving for a particular period of time, and can actually run with something without worrying about me coming in the next day and saying, "Actually, we're, we're shifting modes here." So it's become a nice way for us to um, to have like to both meet our needs that are so different, but to allow us to work together effectively. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about exactly what you said around, you know, having that strong relationship where we can come to each other and support each other and get what we need. And and, you know, all, all of that. OK, so I want to get to the next one because no. I don't want to run out of time. Got so much more good stuff here. No, no, that, that's a great example. And, and to me, what you know, one way to summarize part of what I think you said is. Can we establish a few simple ground rules that we can control? Yes. If I say to somebody, I think this is going to work, but if I get information that tells me we have to change the way we're going to do it, believe me, I won't surprise you. I may tell you we have to change it, but it won't be a surprise. I'll let you know as soon as I know. So ground rules can help. It's a great example. Love it. Okay. So the second thing you talked about was loss aversion, right? And this is so important because it keeps us from taking risks. It keeps us from embracing change, right? There's so much that comes out of this. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about how managers can support their team when navigating the the losses that come from dealing with change. I like being open and honest with people and saying, if I think that this change is going to be both positive and with some losses, and, and just saying that, kind of like you say with your colleague, I've seen leaders who say, you know what, folks, we're not going to start with bells and whistles. We're not going to overhype this. I think, and I know some of you think this change can do a lot, but let's face it, some of you are going to be working with different people and you like your peers, and that's going to be a loss, at least for a while. I've seen leaders say, some of you are happy where you are, and this may involve some geographic change. I heard some people, leaders say, some of you, and this is where my wife comes in when I think about this, maybe some of you like to do what you do and do it very well and keep doing it. And others of you who have what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset, others of you, you know, thrive on new challenges. 
And then the leader says, all of us are going to have to make some changes in terms of the skills. And now here's how we're going to lessen the blow. We've got the following train lined up. We're going to ease into this one step at a time and so on and so forth. I once had a client, Mamie, real quick story, social services agency. Each of them was dealing with their specialty and they loved being specialists. Some handled Medicaid, some handled child issues, some handled housing, some handled training. Each of them was an expert in their issue. The leader of the organization with the team did some best practices scouting around and learned, this is some time ago, that the best way to work in their field was to become multi-skilled generalists. Up to a point, be the one person for most things for your family. And then when there's something beyond your expertise, go to a few of the continuing specialists. But most of them were going to go from being specialists to multi-skilled people. And you know what, Mimi? The staff knew it was coming, and they were so depressed. No amount of words was going to help. So with the manager's support, <laughs> we did something that I don't really understand too well because it's not part of my faith. We held a wake. I can still remember it, maybe we sat down, everybody knew what the deal was. It was it's going to be safe to talk about what we're going to miss. We turned down the lights. I literally lit a candle. It was as though we were grieving over a person. And people had time to say, well, I'm going to miss you know, being the expert. I'm going to miss knowing more and more about what I do. I'm going to miss this feeling of esteem and competence. It wasn't whining. They were too professional for that. It wasn't let's go back. Everybody knew the decision was made. They had to be able to say it and hear their boss say what he would miss. And then they started to move through the stages of change. So I think acknowledging losses with support, with I'm going to be with you. By the way, a psychologist who helped me a lot with my book told me that some of the most important words he tells his clients, because all of his clients come wanting to change, is Dave Waters says to them, look, you know what you want to do. You know why. I'm going to be with you on this. And he says he can literally see people relax when he says that. That's because they trust him. That is an amazing, amazing story and example of what we can do to help people acknowledge that loss. I'm like, I love this idea of of the wake or whatever kind of, you know, gathering you want to hold to acknowledge the losses. And it's so easy for us to focus on the new, the better, the like the vision of where we're headed and just completely run over that emotional experience of letting go of all those things and having to to mourn all the things that, that aren't going to be the way they used to that we really loved. So that is just, I love that story. I'm glad. Most changes begin with an ending, a loss, with the future in mind, knowing why they were changing. And by the way, most Americans are very impatient with what we're talking about, Mamie. Think about our words. Don't cry over spilt milk. Deal with it. Get over it. Well, you know, sometimes we have to face it in order to get past it. Yeah. And I'm thinking like there are times even for myself where the loss is actually just the loss of other possibilities, right? As soon as we've made a commitment to move in a new mm. direction, all of the other potential options have now been shut down and just being willing to say like, I'm going this way. This decision has been made and I'm letting go of any future, you know, possibilities that I could have chosen something differently and I'm instead going to focus on this one. Sometimes even that is hard to to just say I'm putting a stake in the ground. Yeah. It's a quick story, Mamie. And if you're willing, uh, after I describe why the 
change I made with the best of intentions didn't start very well, I'll ask you if you can be my consultant and tell me what you think I might have done differently. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. A few years after grad school, I took a job leading a nonprofit. I had zero hours training, didn't know what the hell I was doing. It's amazing we got anything done, but we did. Made our share of mistakes as well. My mistake, namely the first couple of years, was I was only into the work. They didn't see the warm part of us. They didn't see the part of me that really would love to know about their families. They didn't see the part of me that wanted to tell them about mine. It was work, work, work. I was doing what, you know, <laughs> the stages of adult development say often happens in your late 20s. I was just trying to be competent. A colleague of mine clued me in and said, Russ, it's not working. People need to know who you are and they need to know you care who they are. And he was right. So Mimi, I made a change. And I was so proud of myself by coming on Monday mornings, asking people about their weekends. We started staff meetings. We started a ritual. What's new with your kids, movies, books. I even got together with folks afterward for a drink, even though I'm not a drinker. I was feeling pretty good. I was feeling pretty proud of myself. It wasn't so hard. But you know what? I started to notice maybe the staff were wary around me. There were a lot of side glances when, they, when I walked through the halls. One day, a young staffer marched into my office and said, Russ, are you okay? I said, yeah, you bet. Why? She said, you don't seem like yourself, Russ. We don't really know what's going on. Frankly, we're kind of concerned about you. These were the exact, I remember this, these were her words. Well, to say I was surprised was a huge understatement. I wanted the best and it was backfiring. So Mimi, your turn. Where did Russ Linden go off the rails? <laughs> well, first I have to say, you did a great job of making a change so fast because so many times when I talk with clients, they're like, okay, I know what I have to do. But then actually doing it is so much more challenging. So the fact that you were able to quickly recognize what needed to change in your behavior and then follow through on that, kudos to you for that. Okay. Now, the thing that, that you know, could have set you down the path in, in a way that created this kind of concern is when we start behaving differently from what people expect – there's usually like a, what is happening here? Like, this isn't how my person usually behaves. So something must be wrong. And if we don't tell people, hey, I'm noticing this, I'm trying to fix this behavior in myself because this is not how I want to be or this is my goal. If we are not transparent with our team about changes that we are making for ourselves or in the team dynamic, then it can come across as being inauthentic or concerning, right? Like I'm guessing that your team had no clue what was going on and they were just like, what happened to Russ? Is there like, is there an alien in his brain now? Is there, is he trying to like win us over because he's going to like pull something? Like what's happening? Yeah. Mamie, you must've been there. You, you hit it on the nose. I didn't tell them what. I didn't tell them why. I just did it. And of course, they were going to look at me like, what's going on? You know, better the old Russ we knew. In fact, there's some science that shows, some scientific experiments that show people would prefer a, a definite negative outcome than being uncertain. <laughs> They'd rather know their team was going to lose, know it, than worry through the game. So all I, did was, all I did was violate the very needs that I've been telling you about, certainty, predictability, and control. They had no control over it. You know, if I'd been mature enough and said, this is what I'm doing and why, I might have also said, and by the way, I, I need your help. Maybe you can give me some feedback along the way. It did turn around slowly, slowly. I just persisted. I'm stubborn. 
And after a while, I said to some people, look, I know this is weird for you, but this is what I feel is important. And try it out with me. And most people finally trusted it. Took It took months. It took months. Wow. Well, again, amazing that you were able to respond and and change your own behavior. And I'm guessing that that has something to do with neuroplasticity. So maybe we can circle back to this last concept around how we learn and how our brain enables us to adapt and the relationship between that and how we can kind of move more quickly up that curve. It's a terrific question. How do we move more quickly up the curve? One way is we can remove some of the things that hold people back. Some people, when we announce a change or we want them individually to try some new behaviors, worry that they've done something wrong. I think you made brief reference to that in terms of the story I told. So can we honor the past? Can we tell that individual or the group, you know, you or we've done a lot of good things. The world's changing now. Technology's changing. Our competition's changing. Younger workers want something different. But can we honor the past so nobody thinks this is about blame? Another thing we can do to tap that neuroplasticity, maybe, and this is the opposite of what I did because I just jumped in, can we shrink the change? <laughs> can we break it down into its smaller parts, one step at a time? One way of shrinking the change, maybe, is to say what's not changing. If we ask someone or a team to try some new process or develop some new skills, we can remind them that everything else is the same. We're not asking, you know, this is not transformational change right now. What's not changing? Another idea is what's sometimes called the IKEA effect. I don't know about you, but I'm happy to buy furniture that's ready-made, but some people love to make their own furniture. That's why IKEA is so, so successful. By the way, there's also places called you-can-cook-it-yourself restaurants. It's the last thing I want to do when I go out to eat, but some people love to get in the kitchen. Well, the IKEA effect, psychologists tell us, means that we place more value on what we make. If we ask someone to change, maybe we give them some choices, which feeds their need for control. Another possibility, maybe, is to have people pair up and support each other. One person's trying something in, their, in terms of their attitudes or their skills. Someone else is trying to do something different in a project. And sometimes, as you know, peer-to-peer -peer support and advice and feedback can be even stronger than what we as managers give. So honoring that need for relationship building. The last thing I would say comes from a, a wonderful psychologist named, named Dave Waters, I mentioned him briefly before. In a book he wrote or co-authored, maybe he talked about two fundamental human needs that we all have and that he as a psychologist needs to remember when he's helping someone make a change. And briefly, those two fundamental needs are competence and belonging or connections. When we ask someone to make a change, if it's a threat to their competence, or if it's going to make it difficult to connect with people they like to connect with, they're going to resist, you bet. And then the loss aversion comes in. So maybe when we ask someone to make a change, can we build on a strength? We're asking them to try a new skill. Maybe it's something that's totally different. Can we remind them that they were improving in some other skill some time ago? Can we build on a strength? Peter Drucker, probably the best management theorist we ever produced, used to say, make people's strengths productive and their weaknesses irrelevant. Make people's strengths productive, build on their strengths, help them take a strength and apply it to some area that's weak. 
and see if we can make their weaknesses irrelevant. You can't always do that, but in a decent sized organization, maybe you can reconfigure a job so that their strength, their weaknesses aren't really part of the job description anymore. Those are a few, a few thoughts for that wonderful question. These are such great suggestions, especially though I love this one about uh, making it small like and reminding ourselves of what's not changing, right? Sometimes it can feel so like everything's up in the air and, you know, just it's all out the window and there's no certainty anymore. And usually we can reground ourselves by saying, nope, here's what's staying the same. Here's the things that are stable that I can rely on. And these changes are actually quite small in comparison and I can handle it and I can build on those strengths and all those other good things. So this is so much good stuff. I want to shift us to the end of our conversation here and ask you, Russ, about a great manager that you worked for and what made that person so fantastic. I've worked for myself for the most part of my life, Mamie, and I guess I could critique what was uh, good working for me and what wasn't. (laughs) But I'll talk about a manager who's been a client for 30 years and become a friend. He won't mind my saying it. I think he probably would be happy. Rob Stalzer has been a phenomenal local government manager currently the manager of city manager of Fairfax City. Uh, For 12 years, he was deputy county executive for Fairfax County, a huge population of a million and everything in between. Here are the things that I love about Rob. Rob has a great combination, Mamie, of, of focusing on both the micro and the macro. He sees the big picture. He can put things in context. And he learns about the micro because he loves to do what in a book called in Search of Excellence started to preach decades ago, he loves to manage by wandering around. He hangs out in the uh, transit area. He goes on ride-alongs with police. He goes over to the fire department and also the internal agencies. He goes over to HR. He goes over to finance. He just schmoozes. He listens. He's not there to make a decision, by the way. That would be a mistake because then he'd be undercutting that department's director. He goes to listen and learn and be a person. And people literally love the guy, and they'll follow him anywhere. So that combination of micro and macro, knowing the power of showing up, uh, I I found that it's so powerful. Peterson Waterman, who wrote that book I mentioned, In Search of Excellence, they reported years later that the one thing in their book that had dozens of ideas that they heard about more often than any other was this notion of managing by wandering around. Just get out of the damned office, show up, and be with people. And as long as you don't try to make decisions, because again, that takes some, somebody else's authority away, you really add value. Sounds like an incredible practice and a wonderful way to, to stay connected. And where can people learn more about you, Russ, and get a copy of your book and all that good stuff? Well, thanks for promoting it. The name of the book is Loss and Discovery. The loss is what we talked about when we things change, but discovery is the opportunities. Loss and Discovery what the Torah can teach us about leading change. I happen to be Jewish, and in a time of disruptive change, I went to see what did the ancients have to tell us about change, because the Torah is filled with disruptive changes. And it turns out there's a lot there. Uh, The book is primarily about um, contemporary innovative leaders, but there's a number of biblical references. So that's the book. The website for the book is loss-discovery.com lost-discovery.com. And it's got information there about how to reach me. So I'd love to hear from any of your listeners. Well, thank you again for sharing your wisdom today. There were so many great takeaways. I'm really excited to start to apply them to my own work. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for the great questions and the comments.
Russ has generously offered 30% off all his books, including his latest book, Loss and Discovery, which is what we talked about today. This guest bonus is available to members of the Modern Manager community at the Sprout level or above. To get the discount on Russ's books, become a member today by going to themodernmanager.com slash join. All the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rockstar boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.